Welcome to SI's Planet Football Podcast, where each week we discuss the latest in the world of soccer. I am SI.com soccer editor, Avi Creditor, joined today by SI senior writer, Grant Walt, and SI.com's Brian Strauss. And guys, today's podcast is presented by three letters, U-S-A. It's been a pretty remarkable... America, America there it is. Uh, been a pretty remarkable week, couple of weeks, if you want to throw Loretta Lynch and, and the DOJ into this. It's been an amazing month, really, for uh, for the United States and the world of soccer. We're going to focus, though, on, on the U.S. men's national team, U.S. women's national team. We're going to start with the men uh, who swept the Netherlands and Germany, two of the top three finishers in the 2014 World Cup. Uh, naturally, they were not full-strength teams, though neither was the USA. Grant, let's start with you. Two wins over the Netherlands and Germany. Is this the revolution that we were promised? Is, is everything happening? Is it taking off? My running take here is this was a very promising week for Jurgen Klinsmann and the U.S. men's national team. And I just want to leave it at that, you know? I mean, this was uh, very, very impressive. And, and we've seen this a couple of times before with the U.S. winning friendlies at Italy early in Klinsmann's tenure at Mexico. And as far as friendlies, they're friendlies, right? But still, I mean, this was... Uh, two games that the U.S. deserved to win, in my opinion, and to win in Amsterdam, to win in Cologne. Uh, as someone on, said on Twitter, I forgot who also, the U.S. also beat Bladder in Switzerland. Uh, not bad at all, and, and very encouraged, I, th- I think, from a confidence perspective for a lot of young guys uh, like Bobby Wood, like Giassi Zardis. Uh, you go on down the list, uh, there were guys who played well and I talked to Giazzi's artist the other day before the Germany game. He scored his first international goal uh, in the Amsterdam Arena in a 4-3 win against Holland. And he said the big takeaway he had was he felt like he, he belonged on the field with Robin Van Persie and Danny Blind and you know, Memphis Depay, all these Man United guys. And uh, that if, if Giazzi's artist is taking that away from this trip, then already uh, it's more than just winning on the field. It's a victory in a bigger sense. Yeah, and that's that's important for sure. And that's you know this this trip could have gone one of two ways, right? It could have completely they could have bombed. They could have been blown off the field. It looked like they were going to be against the Netherlands, uh, but Brian, they really made Klinsman's scheduling pay off because, like Grant says, it's a confidence boost. They've got one game against Guatemala left, and then it's the Gold Cup, and and there's no better way to enter a tournament like that than with these couple of wins, and especially the way they played late against Germany that second half, uh, taking that and and rolling it forward into Concacaf. Yeah, no, they'll they'll certainly be confident. And um, look, Jurgen practices what he preaches. Give him give him credit for that. He talks about a higher level. He talks about pushing yourself. He talks about comfort zones and the exit from comfort zones. And and that's what he's done with this team in terms of taking them to places where they do risk heavy defeat. They do risk embarrassment, you know. And obviously, uh, Denmark and Switzerland are not Netherlands and and Germany. But he took them there as well. He's taken them to Genoa. He's taken them to Azteca. He's using these friendly dates to really test the boundaries of this team and how far he can push them and how far he can challenge them. And and credit to him for that. These guys are, you know, Zardis thinks he belongs on the field in part because they're now used to playing under these conditions and these kinds of settings. Um, not, you know, you, you've got young guys here who nothing phases. And I think it's important to note uh, you know, I, I remember sitting in the in the in the press conference right after the World Cup final in Rio de Janeiro, and one of the first things Yogi Love did 
was thank Jurgen Klinsmann and credit Jurgen Klinsmann uh, for, for establishing a foundation for Germany. And one of the big parts of that was young, fearless, energetic players, you know, players who were dynamic, players who had range, players who would go forward, um, and players who weren't awed by an occasion. And, and games like these help, you know, bring those, bring that out in people. You know, if, if, if you can do it, you know, if you can do it on a Wednesday night in Amsterdam, you know, you can do it in the Gold Cup. You can do it in a lot of the settings that the U.S. typically finds themselves in. So, so credit to Jurgen for creating a crucible that's, uh, you know, bringing those kinds of things out in players like Giassi Zardes and Jordan Morris. Absolutely. Jordan Morris and, and Zardes and, and Bobby Wood, Brian, I know there's, there's a term that, that you like to call what happens when, when these young players get thrown onto the field and, and good things happen. I won't spoil it. I'll, I'll let you put it out there. Um, but it's, that's really one of the, the big takeaways here is, is that these guys stepped up in place of Josie Altidore and, and Clint Dempsey and Jermaine Jones, and, and they, they got it done. But, but what, what is the magic word that you like to throw out here? The, the term that's been bouncing around, it's, it's, I didn't make it up, but the term bouncing around since, since last year is Jurgen Dust. And, and Jurgen Dust is just the magical, you know, it, it's, it's this guy's toast always lands jam side up, right? That, that's Jurgen Dust. When, when he leaves Landon Donovan at home, he brings Julian Green to the World Cup and Julian Green scores a goal with his first touch. That's Jurgen Dust. And Jurgen Dust is in effect. I mean, who wasn't scratching their head over Bobby Wood? Everybody was. What, what, what is this guy doing on the team? What does he bring? He was invisible in appearance after appearance, maybe five or six or so. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the goal against the Netherlands was, you know, it was, he didn't do much of the work on that goal. I mean, that was Bradley and Jordan Morris, and he was there to sort of finish it. But that's part of a striker's job. But then the strike against Germany was fabulous. I mean, that was a, a touch took him over. You know, he gave himself a, a good bit of distance from a defender with that first touch, turned you know, found a sliver along the left post from 25 yards out and buried it. I mean, that was a world-class strike. And it, and it came out of nowhere from a guy who, who's being relegated to the German third division. So that's Jurgen Dust. It's, 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 you know, in the Hall of Fame of Jurgen Dust. But again, I would actually say that, that, that he was visible, Bobby Wood, in, in U.S. games, but he was actually so visibly bad that I can't <laughs> imagine a player in recent memory for the U.S. who was more reviled by fans to the point where when Wood came in against Holland, the, the reaction on Twitter was universal disgust from U.S. fans. And, and then he scores the winning goal, and suddenly things start changing, and this guy who was just couldn't finish anything in a U.S. uniform, wasn't doing anything at club level, scores one of the greatest goals I've seen by a, by a U.S. player. I, it was just a fantastic play from the start. Yet, Yedlin's another example of, of, uh, of Jurgen Dust. I mean, a guy who, who, who thought he had no prayer of going to the World Cup a few months earlier, uh, gets put on the field and, and, and dazzles in a couple of games. So he, Jurgen clearly has a knack, clearly has some insight into – you know he he can he can find a young untested player and say this guy won't fold under pressure this guy under the bright lights against against a, a superior or at least a heralded opponent is going to take it to them and and he saw that in Zardes he and and he's seen that in Jordan Morris who let's remember is going to be a college junior um, and he just has a knack for seeing these qualities in people why he's able to do that but then not get the best out of a player like Landon Donovan. I mean, the 
the the Twitter angst I've seen over the past few days is what does Benny Failhaber have to do to get a chance? Jurgen doesn't want to work with Benny Failhaber. So why Jurgen's able to get the best out of a guy like Bobby Wood or Giassi's artist but struggles with other sorts of players is a question going forward. But clearly the last two games demonstrated that he has a knack for picking guys who can thrive in these situations. Uh, yeah, and and one of those situations coming up is going to be the Gold Cup. The U.S. put out its 35-player provisional roster. That'll be whittled down to 23 uh, within the next few weeks. Uh, Gold Cup, I believe, starts July 6th. I could be wrong with that, but anyway, around those days. Uh, and, you know, there were some surprising omissions. Um, Danny Williams, who's starting these games in, in Europe, not on the team. Jeff Cameron, not on the team. And then you look at some of the players who are on this team. The Marcus Beasley, who retired internationally in December. Uh, Grant, you can shed some insight on that. But he's offered to come out of retirement to, to play in this tournament again after captaining the U.S. to the win in, in 2013. Uh, guys like Alan Gordon, who, who was part of the semifinal Alan run. Alan Gordon, the, the Bash brother himself, part of... <laughs> Part of the semifinal round of, of CONCACAF World Cup qualifying, um, but really not the first name you think of on you know U.S. national team level, and that's not to take anything away. <laughs> not, the, not the name that most people think of on the U.S. national team level, but you know what? There he is. Um, Grant, I guess first go, go into Beasley, because I know you talked to him um, about this a little bit, and then just your take on, on who is and, and who isn't on this 35-man team. First, I want to talk Alan Gordon, okay? <laughs> okay so, all right, all right. Alan Gordon is my favorite all-time MLS player. The one player I will say I am in the tank for for all time and have rose-colored glasses on everything that guy does. I think he's a winner. I think he's uh, the symbol, if you read my book, of the everyman in MLS, and I think it's awesome that he's going to be at least considered for the Gold Cup team. That said, um, you look at the, the guys who aren't involved – uh, Jeff Cameron's an interesting one, I think. Uh, now, Stu Holden was out here in Vancouver uh, yesterday, and I was asking him about it, and he said that it's a Stoke thing. It's not a, a Jurgen Cameron thing, that Stoke thinks that Cameron has gone hard now basically for three straight years and needs some time off, and that they made this request. So um, it's uh, kind of a useful thing to know. Uh, I was a little surprised Gideon Zellem wasn't uh, on the list because – I thought that Jurgen might want to cap time, even if he wasn't going to use him a lot during Gold Cup. Just get him on the field for a game, and then you know, no worries at all. The guy's with the U.S. forever, even though he appears to be very committed to the U.S. and is having a good U20 World Cup. Jermaine Jones is injured. Uh, Failhaber just seems like a guy that uh, he and Jurgen don't click, uh, never have. Uh, hasn't worked in a January camp for Failhaber in the past. I think some guys have used January camp to to break out like Jossie's artist. We see guys every year, but other guys like Failhaber, I think, have used the January camp to get written off, uh, which is a little unfortunate because Failhaber's been fantastic lately in MLS. Um, you know, we see Beesler and Omar Gonzalez back in the fold. And then DeMarcus Beasley, uh, I, I did speak to DeMarcus. Uh, he said Jurgen approached him. They had a long talk. Uh, Klinsman really wants to win this Gold Cup. This is not about development, and he thinks Beasley is still one of the top left backs out there for the U.S. Uh, so uh, a leadership thing as well, because Beasley was the captain of the 2013 team. He's a good guy off the field, um, and you know that's uh, that's interesting to see. But you know, Demarcus Beasley, the only American male to play in four World Cups, uh, coming back to the national team might be a kind of a, a neat story. 
It would be. I mean, it'd be, it com- came completely out of left field, I thought. I mean, you just – you didn't get the sense that when he retired internationally that it was a, a part-time thing and that he was going to get the itch to come back. I mean, it seemed like it had some finality to it and that he was just going to be focused on, in, on his club play with the Dynamo. Um, I mean, is there – you don't reach out to the guy and, and, and get his – you know, gauge his thoughts on this and put him on the 35-man roster if you're not going to put him on the 23, right? I mean, barring injury, wouldn't you expect him to make that final cut? I would expect him to make the cut. I think it's a little odd if if he were then to. It's kind of like bringing Landon Donovan to a pre World Cup camp and then cutting him. <laughs> Honestly, it kind of. It, Who it would is do that? that? Nobody. Only uh, only a monster. No, it's uh, it it is. It would be weird, I think, to go to all these lengths and then be like, you know what? No, nah, we're we're good. So I I think. I would personally think that one of those 23 tickets is, is punch within. Now, Brian, there are a few veterans that are, you know, good to go for, for this team, presuming that they're healthy. Josie Altidore, Clint Dempsey, Matt Beasler, and, and they're guys who haven't necessarily been consistently with this team. So that's kind of one of one of the challenges now, right, is, is reintegrating them. Well, I mean, you mentioned two of them. Dempsey and, and Beasler haven't played uh, with the U.S. since the conclusion of – the um, the January camp, there was that early February game against Panama. Um, you know, Dempsey, Dempsey missed these past two friendlies uh, because his wife was about to give birth. And I have no idea if that's happened yet. Do you guys know? I don't know. I do not. There was a fourth kid coming. Um, I had a fascinating conversation with Dempsey's daughter about her pink suitcase at the baggage claim at one of the airports <laughs> in Brazil, by the way. <laughs> Um, it was, amazing uh, reporting. Everything was pink. Pink. She was dressed all in pink, and she had a pink suitcase, and she was very proud of it. And um, you know, it was actually it was it was a longer conversation than I had with her father at, than at any point during the World Cup. So, <laughs> um, no, but getting. I mean, Graham Zusi hasn't played with the U.S. at all this year. You know, and 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 so uh, and so, like you said, and then no, no Jeff Cameron, which surprises me. Um, I, I still feel like he should be one of the four best defenders on this team, but it, it, it hasn't really ever clicked for him consistently. Um, so, there, you know, for all of the – I guess it comes to this. You know, it's hard to watch those last two games against the Netherlands and, and, and Germany. And by the way, we haven't even mentioned the biggest issue, which is that Michael Bradley was absolutely phenomenal and, 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 and carried the U.S. to wins on his back in both of those games absolutely unstoppable uh during the last you know good 20 30 minutes of both of those matches um but you know you, you watch those games and you see a lot of qualities that are that are that are positive uh you know the fearlessness the the proactive play Klinsman's been promising for years but we still don't know what this team looks like when it's at its best we don't know what this team's best 11 is we don't know what this team's ideal you know formation or tactical deployment is what does your gold cup team look like what is your gold cup 11 in a final against mexico we still don't know and part of establishing things like that is figuring out the partnerships and the chemistry that that work on the field um, that are ideal for certain players in certain situations and we have no clue what that looks like so there's still a lot of work to do and 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 jurgen's going to have to really pick uh, the right combination of guys and and he's going to have that one friendly to really sort of set up what this team's going to look like. If he wants to win the Gold Cup, he's going to have to pick a team that can do it. And and I don't know that we saw that in 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 the Netherlands and Germany I, because this, there isn't a group that has had that kind of uh, time together to gel 
and, and, and to get used to and, and comfortable with each other that can carry through, you know, a three and a half, four week tournament. That's a good point. Um, and it also, too, it does beg the question after seeing the group that did succeed so well, especially at, at the end of the game in, in the Netherlands and then that, you know, the last 45, 50 minutes against Germany. Uh, if they can succeed so well in that group, does that now put the pressure on on Josie Altador and Clint Dempsey to kind of earn their places back? Which I think would would be a good thing. You could argue. Jurgen would love that. That's, exactly, that's, and that's, that's kind of what he strives for. He doesn't. About. He doesn't I mean, guarantee anyone. No one in spot. the Gold Cup. There's no one in the Gold Cup that's as talented as the Netherlands or Germany. But they're all going to be trying harder, right? I mean, both of those teams were sort of had one eye on the bus with about 20 to 30 minutes to go, especially the Dutch. I mean, they just they just stopped playing. I mean, it was really remarkable. But, you know, credit to the U.S. for 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 it still took, you know, commitment and 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 a good bit of skill to to win both of those games. But the teams that they play in the Gold Cup are going to be playing 90 minutes. They're going to be playing to win. And 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 they're going to have to find the right combinations in chemistry you know, to win, you know, it takes six games to win the gold cup and they're going to have to find the right combinations to do that. And we've seen a lot of, for example, we've seen a lot of pairings in central defense. We've seen Michael Bradley play not only with different partners in center midfield, but in different formations in center midfield where his responsibilities shift game, the game situation to situation. So, you know, Jurgen still got plenty of work to do, like I said, to try to find the right combinations uh, for July. Yeah, uh, so well, definitely some some fascinating weeks ahead uh, for the U.S. men, and definitely some fodder to talk about uh, for sure. I mean, this this was kind of an unexpected result from these these two games. Um, so we'll see where it goes from here. Um, now let's shift to the women who uh, we're taping this the day before they play against Sweden in the second game of the Women's World Cup group stage. They opened with a three-one win over Australia. Uh, not the most convincing of first halves, but they came together in the second half. Megan Rapino was fantastic. Hope Solo, uh, dealing with some more controversy in the media, was fantastic. And they take three points from their first game in the so-called group of death, which I thought was, was imperative because you don't want to go into a Sweden game uh, a team that has has done well against the U.S. and knows the U.S. well, obviously, Pia Sunhaga, the firm, former manager. Uh, you don't want to need to win that game necessarily. So, Grant, you were up there. You were in Winnipeg. Uh, what was your sense around that team after that game? I think they know they can play better uh, and that, you know, they got three points, but, right? Well, and you mentioned Rapino and Solo. They're smart soccer players. They know the game. And, and afterward, they were quick to say, look, we got three points here, but we know the ways in which we can play better. We can be more dynamic. Uh, we can pass the ball better. Uh, we can do a lot of things better. Uh, and yet we got those three points. And I, I do think in the second half, their fitness show, not just in a, in a fitness sense because the Australians sort of wilted, but because the U.S. is able to play a higher level of soccer for a longer period of time. Uh, and, and that's what we saw. You know, the first half, Australia outplayed the U.S. They were connecting better. They were getting better chances. And Solo made two, maybe even three, really remarkable saves that I don't, as you know, Rapino said, I, she didn't know if any other goalkeeper in the world could make those saves. Uh, and while that's a little concerning uh, <laughs> that those chances uh, were allowed, uh, it really did help the U.S. right the ship and, and go in at 1-1 at halftime and, and turn things around in the second half. Uh, and I, I think ahead of 
this Sweden game, we're probably going to see some changes. I don't think Abby Wambach was probably going to start for the Sweden game even before she was largely ineffective for 90 minutes in game one, um, you know, just because uh, I, I'm kind of predicting, I guess, that Kristen Press will move up top uh, to start because I think she's more effective in her natural position. Imagine that. And <laughs> that, uh, that Tobin Heath might get the start out wide in Press's spot with Wambach going to the bench. Um, and at Pia Sunhaga in comments to, to the New York Times, which I guess were made uh, a few weeks ago, but just the timeliness of it actually makes sense, is she said that Abby Wambach would have been a sub for her anyway if she was still coaching the U.S. Um, at this point. And I know Wambach has been a sub, uh, you know, sporadically for Jill Ellis, and we thought that she, you know, wouldn't be necessarily starting every game anyway. But those two chances that she missed, uh, two anyway, that stick out for me, uh, you would have expected her to finish those. Um, one of them came off off the foot of Rapino off of a free kick, um, and just you know maybe she it's better for her to have more in the tank later in the game when other teams are are more um, battered and and kind of not on on that same energy level. Um, so maybe that's that is the best use of her going forward. But I, I want to go back to Rapino a little bit because um, you wrote about this. Hell, we put four players on the on the SI cover and none of them were Megan Rapino. Is she the most underrated player on this team? She has been a part of so many big moments uh, in in the Olympics and, and World Cups. Um, and it seems like we only really recall that, at least uh, on a more mainstream level, every two years. Well, the thing with Rapino also is I think she does things that few or no other U.S. players do in a creative sense on the field, but there are also moments, and, and let's be honest, sometimes games where it doesn't come off for her, and I do think um, we've seen that on occasion. I, I also think in big games, she tends to show up. Uh, the question I have, I guess, is how many players like that can you afford to have on the field, and that may be one thing that keeps Jill Ellis from, say, starting Rapino and Tobin Heath together because I think they're similar players who try stuff that doesn't always come off and how many players can you have on the field at, at the same time where there's that risk being run. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a fair point. Um, I think, uh, look, her service from, from that side of the field, though, is, is tremendous. Uh, and, you know, she didn't get the assist on the go-ahead goal uh, for the U.S. That went to Sydney LaRue, but her her takedown, control of the ball, and then lob to find LaRue in space um, before the cutback to press um, really really sparked that play. You know, in a lot of ways, like Bradley against the Netherlands, he, he didn't get credit for two of the assists, um, but he was the architect, and that and that was kind of Rapino uh, against Australia. Now, Brian, I, I know you... You think it's it's a little bit much how how we kind of dissect every U.S. women's game uh, on at the end of the day they won three one they have three points in the World Cup and in the tournament's toughest group and they're set up pretty well uh, do you do you find yourself on the Australian FA side of things where you think <laughs> where you think amazing. where you that think Australia amazing. is clearly a better footballing nation quote uh, or do whoever wrote that is the next uh, director of communications for FIFA? There's no <laughs> question about it. Um, yeah, no, just, just the angst and consternation uh, that people had during and after that game. Um, you know, we're at the point with the with the U.S. women where you know a three to one win at the World Cup, where in the end, at the conclusion of the ninety minutes, and I've got news for you: the last thirty minutes of a game are just as important than as the first thirty minutes of the game. Um, you know, 
we're, we're at the point where that's so boring that, that people need to nitpick and find sort of whatever problems they can find. This is not a perfect team by any stretch. But to say that it's slipped dramatically or that it's far worse or far different uh, than its predecessors just doesn't really ring true to me. I mean, this, this team actually wins more frequently than they used to. If you look at like, you know, eight to ten year long kind of, you know, if you look at generational results over the, the you know, the, the timeline of the U.S. women's program, the team has never won more frequently than it does now. Uh, they've lost 11 of their last 220 games. That is absolutely remarkable. That means basically every loss is a statistical fluke. And, and a big reason for that, and Grant referenced this on Twitter the other day, over the course of 90 minutes, they may look shaky for 20 or 30, but over the course of 90, this team is almost unbeatable, uh, except against Japan in the World Cup final. But they, they have a, 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 a level of fitness and athleticism and commitment um, and, and an ability to change games late that other teams simply can't match year after year after year. Um, you know, there are some issues with the, the, the balance in midfield that may play a role in games against the three or four teams that are good enough to, to, to beat them, France, Germany, you know, maybe Japan, maybe Canada, etc. But this is a team that will win all three games in this group. Uh, this is a team that should have no problems at least getting to the semifinals. And, and once they get that far in this tournament, it's going to require a, a historic Herculean effort to beat them. And that's what history shows over and over and over with this team. And you guys mentioned Wambach, uh, wh- whether she should be starting or not. Think about what, a, what an incredible advantage that is. I mean, not only do you have a team as a whole that, that's fitter and, 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 and more composed toward the latter stages of a the game, then with 20 minutes to go against a tired opponent, you bring on Wambach, who knows she doesn't need to, to, to you know, figure out a way to make it through 90 minutes. She's just got to go hard for 20, 25, and that's going to make a difference. This team, like I said, there are some balance issues. Um, we don't know if they're going to hold up defensively, but they don't have to be perfect. They don't have to beat the 1999 team that also had a couple close calls, if you remember. All they've got to do is beat the other teams in this tournament, and they're well set up to do that, and, and I don't think there should be that much concern and that much consternation over what were a couple of shaky minutes uh, in the opening game of a World Cup against a top 10 team. Yeah, that's a fair point. And I, I think a couple of things. First, the, the level, the standard level that's been set for this team is, is just abnormally high, right? So, Impossibly high. Impossibly right. high. So everything that doesn't go right for them, we, we are going to skewer a little bit. That's what we do. That's what fans do. That's what media does. That's what social media era does, right? I think that plays into it as well. You, you start the snowball effect of of dissenters and and some people who you know start picking apart everything, and and it gets a little out of hand. Now that's not to say that that they're wrong, and, and like you said, they didn't play a perfect. Game. No, they're not, they're not wrong, and if they enjoy doing it, then that's great. But <laughs> you know, more power to them. But this is like I said, this is a team that that. Every loss that they have is historic. I mean, it's literally historic when they lose a game. And, and so that they, may not, they may not win the World Cup. I mean, Jordan's Bulls won a championship less than half the time. Gretzky's Oilers. I mean, Secretariat lost races, right? I mean, that happens. But, you know, you're going to take the U.S. women in a game seven out of ten times against the other top teams in the world. And in this particular World Cup, Germany is not at full strength. Um, France ha- has not proven it can do it 
in the biggest games at the highest level. You know, who would you pick to win this World Cup other than the U.S. right now? I think they're going to I think they're going to find their rhythm. I think they're going to get it together. And I think over time, Jill Ellis is going to figure out the best way to use Abby Wambach. She's going to find a combination in midfield, an attacking combination that works. If the center backs figure it out and, and, and play to their capability and hope Solo makes the two or three saves that she can make, they're going to be fine. Yeah, and and I think that that's the hope on their end. I will say that. But I'm bum. Yeah, I didn't even mean that. That's that's terrible. It's I'm funny so how sorry. it's funny how the the, the <laughs> Australian screed said something about uh, you know if not for the goalkeeper, right? Didn't it make some <laughs> kind of reference like that? If not for the players on their team, they wouldn't be as good. What does uh, that even mean? But, you know, if not for Tom Brady, Avi, you wouldn't have. Uh, you know, the Patriots wouldn't have won the Super Bowl. That's factually it's correct. Well, the Patriots. That is factually correct, uh, man. I just I want to read the Australian recap of every of every game now, though. That's that was a, a massive PR play because now I'm I'm going I, after they play Nigeria. If Nigeria wins four nothing, I can't wait to read about the greatness that is the Australian national team. <laughs> I will say this: the the women's field internationally has gotten better. Nigeria, if you watch them against Sweden, they they can attack. They looked. Very, very dangerous. The U.S. isn't out of the woods by any stretch just because they've won this one game and because they have all of this history. But you are right that statistically over time, it is shocking when they lose. The rest uh, of the world is getting – to say countries like Nigeria are getting better it, to me is different than saying that teams are catching up. I, I, I And I realize that if you're getting better, then sort of by definition you are moving closer. But – I don't. I don't see that happening. I don't see there. There. There are the same number of of legitimate threats to the U.S. and 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 title threats in this tournament as there was in 1999. You know, there's there's two or three other teams that can win it, just like there was in 1999. I mean, it's wonderful for 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 women's soccer certainly that we see teams like Nigeria. Uh, getting, you know, Spain playing the other day, getting their first chance at a Women's World Cup. I think the expansion of the tournament is great. Um, I, I think the fact that more countries are taking it seriously is great. I think countries in a new transparent FIFA should be incentivized and monitored to invest in women's soccer, to spend some of this windfall on women's soccer. I think all of that's great. But at the very, very top end, you still have maybe three or four countries that can win the thing. And so in that sense, I don't think the U.S. is being caught. I think that there are still only a, a, a couple of teams that can beat them on a given day, and those are the teams that they have to worry about at this tournament. And you know, that, replace go back to '99, replace China with Japan, and replace Norway with France, and you basically have the same number of of, of teams that could win it. it. It hasn't changed that much. That's uh, that's an an interesting and, and fair viewpoint, uh, and and to that end too, the U.S. has never not made the semifinals, right? I mean, the, right. that's. It's it's what they do. That's why the expectations are are there. They've won it the same amount of times as as Germany. So, you, you know, obviously Germany is, is one of the top competitors uh, in this field. Um, and after a, a ten nothing win, uh, granted the opposition, but still ten nothing <laughs> is ten nothing in a World Cup, no less. Well, uh, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with criticizing the team certainly, and there's nothing wrong with holding them to a higher standard. But but to but we have to remember that they're not necessarily playing differently than they did 15 years ago. I mean, the, the U.S. has always played, you know, a, a, a very direct. I mean, Mia Hamm would touch the ball past players and run past them. You know, Michelle Akers would run through them. You know, thing, things, things aesthetically haven't really changed that much 
since what we consider to be the golden days of, of the U.S. women's national team, when, again, I'll add, they didn't win as often as they do now. Look, you're, you're right in a lot of ways. I think that we're in for two uh, competitive group games still. Uh, Sweden uh, on Friday and then the following Tuesday against Nigeria. U.S. gets through that. Then they go to the knockout stage. Uh, as, as Grant has pointed out, uh, both in the magazine and, and on last week's podcast, it really is imperative that the U.S. wins their group and doesn't finish second. If they win the group, it sets up a much easier path to the semifinals. If they do not, then they're, they're looking at some of the top competitors, potentially uh, Brazil, Japan, uh, in, in the earlier knockout rounds. Although they, would avoid, although they would avoid a semifinal against either France or Germany, right, if they... True, but you're you're you know you're expecting that that high level game in the semifinal. In the semifinal, yeah. yeah. You, you'd rather it then than in in the round of sixteen. So uh, look, we'll we'll see what happens. But three points are in the bag. Uh, we would expect more on the way, but you never know. It's a, it's a, There's been a lot of uh, been a lot of empty seats on these games I'm watching on TV. Yeah, um, which is unfortunate because the action it is, is unfortunate. the action is, has the action has been great. There have been some some tremendous goals. France, Mexico, Colombia off the top of my head, Netherlands uh, in their first game ever, their first World Cup goal was was just brilliant, a rocket from Lika well, Martens. To be fair, I have no I literally have no clue what they're charging for these tickets. I mean, it, you know, I don't know if I'd spend 100 bucks to go to a Women's World Cup game. I have no idea what they're charging. Maybe, maybe not, but at the end of the day, there's there's been some good action on the field. Uh action picks back up. And we will see where it goes from here. Uh, and, and to that end, I think we're going to call it a day uh, for us. So for Grant Wall, Brian Strauss, I am Avi Creditor. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.